Enough talk! Welcome to Arnie Geddon. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Tony G. And we're here this week to revisit Conan, our friend, from way back in episode number one. But this time, Tony, he's destroying things. Why? Because he's Conan the Destroyer. Yeah, he's still a barbarian, but he's now the barbarian who also destroys, which was the working title of this film, before settling on the Destroyer. <laughs> well, there actually was a working title for this film. Do you know what it was? Uh, no, I don't. It was Conan, King of Thieves. That's not bad. No, I didn't think that was bad at all. So, Conan the Destroyer definitely does not have the lofty, uh, you know, reputation that Conan the Barbarian has. Does Conan the Barbarian have a lofty reputation? I think it does. I think it's generally held up as a important action movie of the 80s, but also a lot of critics have written about it in the years since, about the themes that run through it, thanks to uh, John Milius and yeah. his fever dream scripting. That's the thing, I always thought it was remembered as a bit of a, a John uh, Milius manifesto, right. more than anything else. I think that's why, though. It, it has subtext that makes it fascinating. It's Arnold, right at the that moment, right before he becomes a big star in Terminator, finding a character he really locks into... It looks amazing. It really captures, I think, the idea of myth on the big screen, even though it wasn't that expensive. Like, it does it very, I think, you know, cleverly in a ways that are very simple and kind of sophisticated. You know, Cam, you're making me wish we were recording a Conan the Barbarian podcast Really? Here. Yeah, because it's been 30 episodes now since we recorded that first episode, and uh, it, it just seems like an eternity. And I think we've improved a bit since we did that episode. I mean... You know, you don't want to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that first episode was a little choppy in places. We've, we've got our editing down and our... our uh... <laughs> yeah, you know, that's the way it is for new podcasts. But I think it was important to start off with a bang. But I do look forward to maybe revisiting that original, maybe some point down the road. At some point, we're going to do the Jason Momoa Conan the Barbarian film. And so I think I probably will be revisiting the original before I watch that, just to kind of be able to reflect a little bit on you know, how what the two kind of have in common, because I don't know that that many people want to hear us talk about the Jason Momoa film for that long, because it's, at least my memory is, it wasn't that great. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, we'll bring more Conan back into the picture, but... That, that was the one where he could breathe underwater, right? Probably. I don't, I barely remember Conan no, that's the Barbarian Aquaman. remake. Was that, oh, I get it, I get it. <laughs> you know what, I totally would have believed it, though. I just have zero memories of that remake. But, Tony, let's get back to Destroyer from 1984. Now, you are a Conan guy. You read Marvel Conan comics. You read Robert E. Howard novels. That's right. Well, short stories. Sure. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, a lot of the novels from that were the post-Howard novels as well. So The PH novels. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what they're called canonically, yeah. Conanically. <laughs> so I want to know, what is your relationship going way back to Conan the Destroyer, because I know you have such a reverence for the original Conan. That is like your Arnold movie in a lot of ways. What about Conan the Destroyer? Well, it's funny you mention that, because uh, I hadn't seen Conan the Destroyer in, I won't say a long, long time. I'd seen it a few years ago, but 
I've never had a very good experience watching it because I, I'm always been I've always been comparing it to the original Conan the Barbarian, and the two movies are so different. Like I remember the first time watching Conan the Destroyer, which was I was in a bit of a mage exploitation phase in my in my early teens, as all young men go through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just hitting the video store, uh, getting those uh, you know five movies for five dollars, and they would pretty much be Conan, Excalibur, Lady Hawk, etc. Yeah, uh, and Sword and the Sorcerer, yeah, or whatever it's called. Yeah. Exactly, maybe Beastmaster to round it out. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And uh, and I remember the first time I watched it uh, being just so disappointed in Conan the Destroyer because mm-hmm. uh, obviously Conan the Barbarian is a hard Nietzschean R. Right. Uh, and Conan the Destroyer is not. It's much more family-friendly fare. Uh, there's a lot more lighthearted humor and gags in it. And I remember at the time, the first time I watched it, really not being that into it um but watching it again i, I i've kind of revisited and, I, and i've got a different take i mean how about, how about you what was your first experience with conan the destroyer cam so i saw conan the original back when i was probably in my early teens with a with a friend of ours i didn't really like it that much but i enjoyed watching it with him but it was a movie i didn't have the same love for that i did like terminator or predator so because of that i didn't really feel any sort of rush to watch the sequel and so i just kind of let it lie and then um years later uh probably in my early 20s no probably more like my mid-20s i was drawn to filling in random sequels that i hadn't seen to you know franchises and we had a video store here in vancouver in north vancouver called schlockbuster and it was like a cult video store and I don't know how they were allowed to get away with that name. There should have been like a copyright infringement, <laughs> but for some reason they were allowed to. And it was the coolest place. It had like movie, you know, style props. You would see like, you know, like the robot from like uh, This Island Earth, like that sort of stuff was set up in the store. They had trick mirrors. It was a really, really cool video store that went under not because of video stores going out of business, but because of real estate issues. And they just couldn't find another place to move to. Could have so, been could have been lawsuit issues as well. <laughs> Maybe. But they had awesome deals. And I went down and they had like a five movies for five days for five dollars. Yeah, the old classic. Yes. The and video I, store classic. That's right. So I, I would go down there all the time and that's when I started grabbing movies that you know, that's how I saw all the Friday the thirteenth sequels and all that sort of stuff. I grabbed Conan the Destroyer. Um, probably the same time I watched Tron (laughs) and, um, I remember watching it at home and I think I felt very, very much the same way towards it as I did Red Sonja the first time I watched Red Sonja, another schlockbuster special, um, in that, like, I, I didn't hate it. I, I just kind of was like, yeah, that was pretty cruddy and I just wrote it off. I didn't really think about it ever again. Like it definitely did not have the impact the original Conan did, even though Conan, I didn't really come around to it till we did it for the podcast, which was the second time I watched it, the first one. I was really uh, in admiration of that first one, revisiting it. Like, I, I, I kind of, the light went off over my head going like, I get it. I didn't get it when I was younger. But like, right. Destroyer, I don't know that there was as much to get <laughs> as a kid, you know, or when I was young when I saw it. And I thought, eh, kind of dumb, kind of silly. That's about that. So... Yeah, I, I have a little bit of a different take, I think, this time. But, uh, yeah, didn't really care for it that much. 
I don't know, it's kind of disposable. Especially when you look at all the Arnold movies that came after. Mm-hmm. But let's go back to the year 1984. Let's. And this is the year, of course, that Arnold has a big breakthrough. And it's not Conan the Destroyer. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, what is it? It's, uh, it's uh, about that cyborg or something like that. Yeah, yeah, cyborgnator. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah, that is the year that James Cameron's Terminator comes out in October, I believe. Well, a little bit earlier in the year, Conan the Destroyer comes out. It makes thirty-one million domestic, and that's uh, you know, for comparison's sake, uh, that's like nine million dollars less than the original made in nineteen eighty-two. So the original made forty. This one made 31. For some reason, the international grosses aren't listed uh, anywhere that I can find that's legit. Um, but it seems like it did okay. But the original did like 30 million international. So it made a $70 million total. I don't know what Destroyer did total. I only know the 31 million domestic. And I'm assuming those aren't adjusted for inflation. Of course not. Of course not. <laughs> uh, but what was 1984? We've gone through this year already on Terminator. So I'm just going to gun through the top 10. You have Beverly Hills Cop at number one with $235 million, and it's followed by Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Gremlins, Karate Kid, Police Academy, Footloose, Romancing the Stone, Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, and Splash. Really movies that have all been forgotten. Yeah, not, not, a, not an A-list movie on there, is there? No, I really only know of that Karate Kid with Jaden Smith. You know, I, I guess it was based on that original, right? Yeah, and I don't. I only know uh, Police Academy, Mission to Moscow. I think that was six. I, see, I only, I've only heard of the animated series. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, you know, we we went through that top ten in the Terminator episode. But where did Conan the Destroyer land? It landed at number twenty-seven, which was six spots below Terminator. Just above it was Friday the Thirteenth, the final chapter. Which, in my opinion, is the best Friday the 13th movie. I think it's the only one you can say is legitimately pretty good. Not, not Jason X? That one's terrible. <laughs> and then it was one spot above Dune. A movie that... Very interesting. I yes, mean, why is that interesting? Uh, because uh, both Dune and Conan the Destroyer were shooting in the same place in Mexico about the same time. And apparently were... Uh, sharing a lot of resources, including crew and sets, and in some ways are regarded as uh, sister movies. And they both kind of failed at the box office, because Dune was considered a catastrophe. Dune was considered a catastrophe, but I think... Uh, uh, I mean, It, it probably you, cost a lot more than Conan. Yeah, I think uh, if you want a really good, just tangentially here, if you want a really good review of not that Dune, uh, but the you know the, how Dune might have been developed. I think Hodorowsky's Dune, which is the the documentary about the Dune that was never made. Yeah, it came it, out maybe four years ago, five so, years ago, something like that. It's but it, really great. It's spectacular. But uh, yeah, you get the impression that the David Lynch Dune was uh, they were throwing a lot of money at it and uh, then just ran out. Are you a fan of the David Lynch Dune? I don't mind it as much as some people do. Yeah, I, I think it it suffers from uh, incoherence. <laughs> it suffers from the second act being introduced a little bit too quickly after uh, after setting the stage in the first act for for far too long for for the end of the movie. I really hated Dune. That was a movie, <laughs> another schlockbuster special, and uh, I, I went into it being really excited for you know another sci-fi epic, and I, I oh, oh, oh boy, I walked out of that one just shaking my head. Yeah. Uh, I remember I watched it I think the same night as Ridley Scott's Legend. 
That's a long night, Ken. It was a very long night, and neither of those movies are very coherent. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't tell when watching The Destroyer this time. I was looking for it. I was trying to figure out if... Where the sandworms were? <laughs> yeah, well, not quite. Uh, but I was trying to figure out <laughs> if there was any sets that I recognized or any shooting locations that I recognized. But, you know, it's been a while since I've seen Dune, so there's a lot of desert, put it that way. You were like, Conan is the spice. The spice is Conan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, some other notable movies in that year's box office. A few spots uh, above Conan, you had at number 15, Grey Stoke, The Legend of Tarzan, which I thought is interesting. It's another pulp hero from similar time period as Conan, and uh, doing a little bit better. I actually really like that Christopher Lambert movie. I think it's really, really entertaining. I don't think I ever saw it. Really? It's really weird. I'll check it out. It's It kind of is a little bit artsy. It's really strange. It's it's definitely not a take on Tarzan that I've seen replicated. Mm-hmm. So and I've watched all the old Tarzan movies too. So but, it definitely feels original. But, but but that is interesting because when you think about the Tarzan movies generally, I mean, it, has there been a character more serialized in motion pictures than than Tarzan? Than Tarzan? I don't think so. Robin Hood is quite a bit but nowhere near as much as Tarzan. And so you you think and that's the impression you get watching Conan the Destroyer. Uh, is you know this was another franchise Schwarzenegger wasn't a huge star yet and it mm-hmm. was it was ripe for that kind of serialization and with Conan gallivanting the Hyborian globe sure and uh, they should have been cranking these things out pretty much one a year they they, they really could have been and yeah. and who knows it could have taken Schwarzenegger's career on a different path probably not as good a one no exactly <laughs> he wouldn't have been buying Planet Hollywood <laughs> but uh, some of the other movies that Conan beat. At number 40, Nightmare on Elm Street, the original. At number 46, you had uh, Missing in Action. That's got to be the highest grossing, I think, of the Chuck Norris vehicles, right? It's up there. It's got to be up there. Well, I just watched Lone Wolf McQuaid the other night. Yep. And I don't, I'm don't. i not sure where it grossed, but it should have been the number one movie of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Delta Force might be up there, actually. But at number 50, with uh, a little bit of competition, you had Stallone with Rhinestone. Yep. <laughs> have you seen Rhinestone? Uh, I saw it ages ago. It's been a while. It's, uh, it's, it's something. <laughs> I, I don't remember much about it. And then at number 66, you had Supergirl, which is another, you know, comic book character making the, making the translation to the screen. Boy, Supergirl is terrible. It's it, really, really yeah, rough, it, rough going, unfortunately. It's not very good. But you say that uh, between Terminator and Destroyer, that those are two movies that didn't do that well. But really, I mean... You well, think, Terminator you... did in relation to its cost, because it's number 21. It's six spots above Conan. But again, Terminator was dirt cheap. I think both of these movies are profitable. I don't think either one of them are bombs. I kind of was saying that because Destroyer and Dune came pretty close together in box office. But I feel like uh, Destroyer is still profitable, because Dino De Laurentiis, the producer, knew how to make movies pretty cheap with the maybe the exception of King Kong, and usually made money on these things. Well, I think the the important thing here, from a Schwarzenegger perspective, yeah. is that you've got Arnold, for the first time in his career, appearing in two top 30 films, box office-wise. That's a good point. And uh, from here, I, there's a couple missteps along the way, but, uh, I mean, this is the springboard this year for his genuine action superstardom. Right, right. No, that's an excellent point. Now, at the time, they made the very specific choice to cut this movie to a PG rating. They shot it. It was pretty close to an R. It was almost on the line for an R. And then they said, no, no, we can get more 
audiences if we cut it down to a PG. Um, when you watch this movie, are you bothered by that fact? I actually made a lot of notes about it. Uh, there is sufficient violence in this movie that I'm actually really surprised. This is not the type of movie that would receive a PG rating today. This would be a PG-13 for sure, yeah, at yeah. least. I agree. This feels more like the you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark PG, where you're like, no, this gave me enough. And this even had more blood than that movie. This had decapitations. This had a lot of uh, blood, actually. Yeah. Uh, people being killed left and right. It didn't have the same high-impact gruesomeness that uh, the original Conan the Barbarian did, where... You know, you think about where he takes Tulsa Doom's head and just throws it down the stairs at yeah. the cultists. Uh, nothing quite as gruesome as that, but uh, but pretty close. And this was at a time, I believe, where they didn't have a PG-13. Right, that's true. Yeah, that came out, uh, I believe, uh, that same year. Because you had the release of Gremlins and Temple of Doom. And those two movies caused a real firestorm. Uh, with parents groups who are very concerned about how violent these movies are getting uh, for the PG rating. And so PG-13 starts the next year. I think Red Dawn was actually the first PG-13 movie. And uh, yeah, which John Milius does, of course. And this movie was not directed by John Milius. This was Richard Fleischer, who's really famous. Uh, he was a long-term studio guy. He did some real classics like Soylent Green, Fantastic Voyage, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Um, he also did a movie in 1958 called Vikings, which inspired uh, John Milius when he was making the original Conan. So it kind of makes sense to bring Richard Fleischer over and have him make an actual Conan movie. Have you seen the Vikings? I have not, although, but I didn't. I did know that. I know that the original aesthetic of Conan the Barbarian was based on that movie, but it's one I'd like to pick up one of these days. It is a really fun movie. Uh, Kirk Douglas movie. I've seen it. It's an absolute blast. Ernest Borgnine as a Viking is incredible. But let's get into this movie a little bit because there's a lot to talk about, I think, with Conan the Destroyer. Tony, what is this movie about? Well, I'm glad you asked, Cam. Conan the Barbarian uh, is now a little older, a little wiser. He uh, is... Two, two years older. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he is now a, prof a professional thief. Uh, making his way across the land, seeking his fortune, and ultimately seeking his kingdom, but lamenting the lost love of his warrior woman, Valeria. And uh, after a heist gone wrong with his thieving partner, Malak, and he's captured by the evil queen, Taramis, played by Sarah Douglas. Who played Ursa in uh, Superman 2. Right. She was awesome. One of Zod's, uh, you know, henchmen. Right. She was so badass in that movie. And the queen makes Conan an offer that he can't refuse, which is she offers to magically bring back from the dead Valeria, from the side of the god Krom, back to Earth. And in exchange, all Conan has to do is steward uh, a young princess, Jenna, to some kind of magical castle where she has to get some kind of magical gem, which in turn will get some kind of magical horn, which will then, you know, awaken some kind of evil god, etc., etc., etc. You know, there's a lot of interesting characters along the way and uh adventure ensues yeah that pretty much sums it up i think yeah. uh you've also of course got uh grace jones along for the ride as a like a warrior woman named zula you've got wilt chamberlain as the guardian of this princess's virginity which yeah. is odd yeah. playing bombata <laughs> yeah yeah and then uh mako makes a return again he was in the first one as akiro the wizard he's really bad 
in this. I don't think he's that bad. And Tracy Walter, um, probably best known as Bob from the uh, Tim Burton Batman, yeah. uh, playing Malik. Yeah. Okay, so, Tony, you've revisited this movie mere hours ago, maybe in about an hour ago. What is your take on Conan the Destroyer now? I think I'm a little bit more forgiving uh, to it than I was the first uh, the first time or two that I watched it. I, I really enjoyed watching this movie. It was maybe it's just that uh, it's been a while now since our first episode since I watched Conan the Barbarian. I haven't watched it since, and so I I wasn't really comparing it side by side with it. And uh, I, I had a good time. It doesn't have the same hard hitting impact as the first one, but it. Uh, it it certainly is a yarn and an adventure and a lot of, you know, kind of disposable characters that are still kind of fun. They're more there as window dressing than anything else. And it's, if not at the same level as the first one, I think pretty uh, pretty fun fantasy fair when you look at what was being released in that genre around that time. Yeah, you know what, I kind of agree with you because the thing is, the original Conan the Barbarian is a motion picture. I mean, Milius is making an epic, you know, on maybe a lesser budget, but that movie is visually striking. He is working with trying to create a, a modern myth uh, on screen, and that's not what this movie's doing. This movie's just like, hey, want to have fun with these characters? Let's just do that. And so, like, you know, Milius is aiming high with his ambitions. This movie's not. It's just like, hey, come hang out with the gang. We're going to go on some wacky missions. You've got lots of really cool set design and locations. Here's a bunch of fight scenes that are kind of goofy and fun. You know, it's a lot of nonsense. But you know what? Like, it is kind of fun nonsense. It's not, um, you know, a movie I began to compare it a lot to. And, I, you know, it's not coincidental, really. But uh, it and Red Sonja, you know, side by side. We watched Red Sonja a while back. We did a podcast on that. Both uh, Dino De Laurentiis joints. Both the Richard Fleischer movies? Yeah, both Richard Fleischer movies. But, like, I feel like this is kind of like maybe Red Sonja done, maybe a, just better, done in a more entertaining fashion. Red Sonja is, I think, kind of campy and fun, but it also has really grating elements, like uh, the Little Prince character. Yeah, played by Ernie Reyes Jr. Yeah, uh, whereas, like, this movie doesn't have those elements that really grated on me. I just thought it was kind of weird a lot of the time, and fun, and silly, I mean, and it, I enjoyed it for that. It's like a B-movie. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I don't think you can talk about this movie without talking about Red Sonja. And we did, uh, I mean, we've done our Red Sonja episode some time ago. And it's it's interesting that a year after this, because Red Sonja was 1985, you've got Richard Fleischer. A lot of the same people were involved in making Red Sonja. uh, And we talked about on our Red Sonja episode how... Schwarzenegger's playing the the wandering warrior Kalidor, who, you know, it's rumored that that's actually intended to be Conan the Barbarian, but there was some some copyright issues and they couldn't get the rights to him. And it's amazing, actually, you look at Conan the Destroyer and it's not quite as good as the original Conan the Barbarian, but it's a way better movie than Red Sonja is. Yeah, yeah. Like, Red Sonja, it just is really clumsy and feels like it would not surprise me if they shot Red Sonja in far less days than this movie. Like, it does feel very cobbled together. Whereas, like, this one actually feels like, you know, they took their time and they shot a legitimate movie. You can have real debates about the quality of the movie. Like, there's, you know, some pretty hokey dialogue and, 
it's definitely a B movie. It has that sort of silliness with it, but it feels a little more intentional. Whereas like Red Sonja, a lot of it did not feel that intentional. Yeah, well, one thing, and maybe maybe it's um, Richard Fleischer's work that uh, that both movies did do kind of well. Was I thought the aesthetic, and you you mentioned earlier the aesthetic of uh, world building and having mm-hmm. uh, a bunch of sets that. They just kind of walk by, but they never really explain they how they got there. They don't even need sets. There's like one part where it's just like a mammoth skeleton. In the desert. Yeah. And, and then, you know, the, a row of warrior statues that are crumbling apart. Yep. Castles that are there, but they never go in. They're just there. Right. And uh, and they don't need to go in. And that's what uh, both of these movies, and Conan the Barbarian, although that's not a Fleischer movie, uh, do is these really wide shots of cool landscapes Mm -hmm. Uh, although at one point early in the movie i did point out that uh i think i could see some telephone wires in the background (laughs) so (laughs) i think those would be digitally edited out today but uh yeah i mean red sonia i i can i kind of consider red sonia to be a conan movie and and uh, it might as well be yeah um and when I talked about Schwarzenegger missteps along the way, I mean, that, that's got to be considered one of them. Well, yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. This movie I don't think is, though. And I, I think a lot of its negative reputation has to do with the rating. A, a lot of it. And just the fact that in terms of artistic ambition, it's definitely lower on the scale than, uh, the, the, than the original. I am curious why Milius didn't do it. Um, I couldn't find any info as to exactly why, just that he wasn't available. And I know he did Red Dawn the next year, so maybe he was busy with that. Uh, he was probably busy stocking his bunker with barley or something <laughs> like that. Do you uh, do you think he wanted to do a sequel? Uh, I have no idea. I, I don't really have that much insight into John Milius's brain, except <laughs> <laughs> except the little that I've read about him, and it all seems to be uh, a unsettling, little, a little unhinged, uh, <laughs> which I, I like. Oh but, yeah. But I think it makes sense uh, for us to to get into the movie itself. Yeah. Um, so I, I know <laughs> most of the people who are listening to this have probably been joining us for a while. Uh, but spoiler alert, we are going to be spoiling pretty much the entire movie for you. So if you haven't seen Conan the Destroyer or if you haven't seen it recently, it's a not a hard movie to find. Put us on pause and, and then come back to us so we don't ruin the whole thing for you. Although I don't know if there's that much to ruin, really. But... I think there is. I, <laughs> okay, okay, uh, fair we, enough. We, we make these kinds of jokes uh, in, in most of our episodes, but in this case, uh, this is no Jane Mansfield story. <laughs> but what is? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think an interesting place to start with this movie is in the beginning, in the sense that, like... Well, <laughs> is it really? <laughs> well, we don't really go beat for beat, you know, throughout yeah, the movie. Yeah, but I what I find interesting about this movie is, in many ways, it's a series reset. Where you open the movie, Conan is just a thief out there hanging out with this new buddy we've never seen before. And Valeria is dead. So it's kind of like they've wiped the board for all these elements that we got a lot of affection for in the first movie. And we're kind of starting over. And I think in some ways that's smart because the tone is so different than the first Conan. Yeah, Conan's in a bit of a better mood in this movie than he is in, in Conan the Barbarian. For He's pretty sure. surly in the first one. Yeah, well, I mean, they did establish in the first 15 minutes he was raised in slavery and, and the battle pits of wherever. So, I mean, that'll put anyone in a in a bit of a gray mood. Uh, whereas here, you get the impression he spent the last couple of years, uh, you know, winning and losing fortunes in, uh, you know, maybe fighting a wizard or two. 
um, you, you know, warming the bed of a tavern wench here and there. Sure. Uh, and and he's just you know he's he's been allowed to he's been allowed to live life as a barbarian should. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, I mean, you say the the board's been wiped clean but in and that's true but in some ways the board was wiped clean in the first movie with valeria's death and mako uh as a hero the wizard being sent off and, and and doing whatever and and then schwarzenegger was left on his own to travel the travel the land as right. conan the barbarian and and here we don't go right back to conan the barbarian but we uh we revisit those early elements. So uh, even though Valeria is there, she, I mean, she's not a speaking role. She lies on a flaming board. Right. Uh, but That was not Sandal Bergman. <laughs> <laughs> probably not. Uh, but she, the, she's the MacGuffin for Conan in this movie. Mm-hmm. And um, Akiro makes, he comes back and in some ways plays a bigger role as part of the, the band of rogues that are, are going to shepherd Princess Jenna to the castle and back. Do you think Valeria's a good MacGuffin in the sense of like, I, I you never really get the sense that Valeria's going to be coming back. So is it a MacGuffin that's kind of useless because, you know, I think as fans you'd want to see her brought back at the end, but that's also never going to happen. To be fair, the movie doesn't try and push the conceit that Valeria might ever actually be brought back. Right. I mean, I mean as soon as Queen Teramis asks Conan to, to do this favor for her, she pretty much goes into the next room, you know, cut scene, and then is talking to Bombada, by, played by Wilt Chamberlain, shortly thereafter and saying, here's the deal, Valeria's never going to be brought back, and by the way, not only are we not going to give anything to Conan, but we're going to kill him as soon as he's done the job. No, that's a good point. So, yeah. really, the story, you know, Valeria's the... It's the, definitely driving Conan throughout the entire movie. It, it's driving Conan, well, up until the point where he realizes that he's yeah. been betrayed, yeah. at which point, um, and what's always been an important part of Conan in the, I mean, in the original movie to some extent, but certainly in all the, the literature about him, is uh, he's this barbarian, but he's very chivalrous. And all of a sudden, his motivation stops being the resurrection of valeria his his warrior princess and starts being the maybe maybe warrior princess is the associated with a different character these days <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly but start and starts being um the the rescue of princess jenna from her prophesized fate and he's got a lot of really good kind of milius style lines about how he doesn't care what what fate is how <laughs> you know they talk about how princess jen is going to be killed and it's her destiny and he says you know we shall see destiny or not <laughs> uh, i feel like if he had a uh an english language dictionary with him he yeah. he might uh, and flipped it to the d section he might rethink those lines <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point <laughs> so what i really enjoyed about this movie was it in many ways it feels like a western you know, he's kind of the gunslinger that's brought in to, uh, you know, help out with the, the, you know, the crooked town sheriff sort of thing. Right. But I, I did love a moment where he's brought into this city where Taramis is hanging out. And he's walking through these, like, these grand sort of streets. And all the village people are around him cheering. He punches out a camel again in a nod to the first one. <laughs> but the music is like really pomp and circumstance type stuff. And I was reminded so much 
of like the biblical epics of the 50s. And I don't think that's, you know, a, a mistake because, you know, you think about it, Richard Fleischer was directing movies back in the 50s. He did a narrow margin, I think, around then. Um, and so, like, he understands that old-timey kind of feel of movies. And I, I don't think this movie was expensive, but it gives off that sort of epic feel to it. And that's the sort of stuff I really enjoyed in this movie. Absolutely. Just on that scene, though, I, I got a question for you. Yeah. Because I couldn't really figure it out because... Uh, Conan and Malik are a pair of thieves. Yeah. And then when they when they're brought into town by the queen, all the townspeople are are, are cheering them. Yes. And saying Conan and Malik saying they love us Conan. Right. Did you figure out why it was the townspeople would love these two guys? Not really. No. Well, I mean, it was good to start on a high note anyway. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they're so excited cuz it's Conan. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't excited for Malik. I know I was. <laughs> But what did you think of this central mission? Because, you know, the first one has this very, like, stripped-down, elemental-type story it's telling with Conan. Whereas, like, this one, it is kind of convoluted. It is a take this princess on a quest to find a diamond, then use that diamond to get a horn, and all this sort of stuff. It's it's much more, like, it's it's very simple. It's It's A to B to C to D, but it still is, like, has a certain amount of exposition all tied to it. It feels more like a treasure hunt kind of movie. How do you feel that works with a Conan character? Watching it this time, I actually really like that because Conan's roots, of course, are in old Pulp Fiction magazines and then Pulp novels and then Pulp comics. Right. Um, and by their by their nature, Conan stories are uh, serial type episodic stories, which are formulaic to some extent and they ha they have the same type of structure which is here's conan we've mm -hmm. established what kind of character he is and you know here's some characters around him who are there basically to help conan right and here's something that he's got to go and do and along the way he's got to uh, overcome some kind of adversary and usually gets the girl i have a question for you as a conan aficionado you know, in this group, you've got, you know, what, like your five supporting characters who all kind of hang out with Conan. In these, like, stories and books and comics and all that, how often is it a consistent crew? And how much does it just switch up? Uh, there's definitely recurring characters. Uh, both Roy Thomas and some of the some of the Conan writers uh, who did the novels. Um, uh, L. Sprague de Camp, who was actually, he was a technical advisor on this movie. Mm -hmm. And um, then Robert Jordan as well, who wrote a lot of Conan books um, early on in his career, is now probably best known for the Wheel of Time series. Okay, of course. Um, the good old Wheel of Time stories. Well, the best-selling uh, fantasy book since Tolkien. Is it really? That's fascinating. I've never heard of it. A series, yeah. I'm not a fantasy guy, though, so yeah, yeah. What, what do I know? I'm an idiot. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> basically, in all the literature, there's, there are recurring characters. But the you know Conan as a character, he's in some ways like like uh, like some of the westerns you mentioned, mm -hmm. um, you know, or like the Hitchhiker if you remember that old show where he's he's a character that comes into town, meets people, makes friends, and he goes on an adventure and then leaves and may or may not meet up with those friends later. He's he's a little bit of a barbaric James Bond. Sure, sure. Or like Kane and Kung Fu. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that that's interesting. Um because that's something I did wonder because, you know, I've only seen 
you know, three Conan movies, but you don't see a lot of overlap with the characters and the supporting cast. So I was curious if maybe the books were or the comics or whatever were a little more consistent. Yeah, I, I mean, um, Temple of Doom was released the same year. Yeah. And um, Conan and Indiana Jones, very similar in that way. Both these characters that lend themselves to serialized adventures. I'm glad you raised uh, Indiana Jones there because... I could not help but think a lot about Indiana Jones watching this movie, and I, I really do feel like Raiders of the Lost Ark had a major impact on this movie. There's a number of scenes, like this whole treasure hunt in old crypts feels... I mean, like, look, this goes all the way back to pulp storytelling, which is what Indiana Jones was drawing on, but Indiana Jones has updated these things and made them hugely popular in 1981, a couple years earlier and trends kind of get passed down and when i'm watching scenes where like they're carefully lifting you know diamonds out of these like really ornate holders in like a crypt and there's all these like you know elaborate uh, set decoration all around it you can't help but think of indiana jones and the impact because that movie was a huge 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 hit for sure. There's actually a, a couple of Indiana Jones crossovers here. Definitely, yeah. Uh, I mean, we've got um, Pat Roach. I think uh, it'd be a sh I bring him up. It's it's I'm kind of shoehorning him in here, but it would be a shame for us to make it to the end of this episode and not talk about Pat Roach, who is really one of the most underrated heavies, I think, uh, in in cinema history. Yeah. Um, especially for movies around this time, he played. Um, the the wizard Thoth Mon in Conan the Destroyer the same year actually he was playing um, the, the main the main thuggy bad guy who was crushed by the rock crusher in Temple of Doom if you remember that yes and he's of course in Raiders as the the German uh, airplane mechanic he is and he's actually in Raiders twice he's also one of the goons at, at the first but yeah uh, I, I've always been a, a, a Pat Roach fan and in, incidentally he's also in uh, in Red Sonja the next year <laughs> yeah but he's a He's a big guy. He's a, he's a really threatening guy, a former professional wrestler. And um, he he does a, a great job here. In, in here, as both the elderly one-eyed wizard and, yeah. and then uh, who, who turns himself into uh, an ape monster who is injured by mirrors and kind of an Enter the Dragon throwback. Yeah, referred to as Man-Ape, not to be confused with the Marvel <laughs> character. Um, <laughs> that that ape costume, not the best. I thought it was great. That mask was terrible. I thought it was awesome. That was definitely not some Planet of the Apes quality stuff even. That was like <laughs> Halloween costumes of Planet of the Apes. You know, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I loved that scene. I mean, that's why the one thing I'm going to take some digs at Destroyer for is that a lot of its monsters look really cheap, and that is a good case. That, But I did like the fight, and it has a trope of mine that is something that I always enjoy, which is shots of heroes being spun around by their legs, and then the camera, <laughs> like, on their stomach or whatever, on their lower abdomen, shooting upwards and getting their face, being like, ay, 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 going around in circles. <laughs> like, yeah. that sort of thing is hilarious. And yeah. this movie also had another one of my favorite tropes, which is the camera on the ground pointing upwards and stuntmen hurling themselves over the lens going like, whoa, <laughs> yeah. as if they're being thrown you know, back and forth. Put it this way, I don't think this was the only movie uh, from the early 80s that had that kind of camera work. Definitely not. It was the shaky cam of 1984. Yeah. But before we move on from recurring characters, actually, it's just... Um, well, I want to get back to you and just think, like, what do you think of the Indiana Jones influence? Like, do you feel it here? 
I didn't think about the influence at the time, although I probably should have. I think you're totally right. Uh, but it, you can definitely see the similarities and the parallels between the two. It, it'd be yeah. hard. It'd be hard to imagine any kind of dungeon crawl treasure seeking movie made around this time not having a little bit of Raiders of the Lost Ark thrown in. And you can totally picture Dino De Laurentiis looking at the box office for Raiders, looking at his Conan property and being like, Hmm. <laughs> We've got Pat Roach on board. Yeah. <laughs> He's the reason the Raiders yeah. made so much. Yeah, but before before we get off of Pat Roach and before we get totally far removed from the recurring characters in Conan, I think it's interesting to note that Pat Roach here plays Tothamon, who was in a lot of the Conan media um, a recurring adversary for him. Or, oh, really? Yeah, and actually... Uh, the character that he, he is in Conan the Destroyer isn't really the type of character he is in the in the literature. He's more of a Tulsa Doom. So is it kind of like a Red Sonja situation where the character in the movie doesn't really reflect the book character? A little bit. Like the James Earl Jones Tulsa Doom is far and away closer to the Tothamon from the uh, from the literature. Interesting. And this Tothamon is just, uh, you know, kind of a, a disposable wizard. Okay, well, I want to talk about that section. Let's just dig into it now because we're already talking about Pat Roach's character. This, I think this might be my favorite section of the movie where they're on this quest to find the diamond. Uh, the, uh, what is it called? I got in my notes here. The Heart of Aramar. And they're brought to this... Which, by the way, sounds like, uh, you know, uh, like a... Dungeons and Dragons dungeon master came up with like on their coffee break or something like that. It's in like the book of uh, magical items. Yeah. Oh, you gotta find uh, uh, the the jewel of bulls are gone. <laughs> but the whole crew comes to this like crystal castle on a lake, and they're like, you know what? Let's go head over there in the morning. And then in the night, this smoke bird comes out. Takes away the princess. I had it in my notes as a cloud pterodactyl. There you go. One or the other. <laughs> and takes her back to this crystal palace. And then they have to go invade this whole section. I love this whole this whole infiltration of the crystal palace. And there's like a big spiral staircase that looks incredible. It's like really cool models and matte paintings going on. Yeah. And it like th that whole mirrored room where he battles Tothamon. I thought it looked amazing and just beautiful. And again, like... The ape looks ridiculous, but I love the entrance where it's like this shrouded red figure coming out. And there's a whole bunch of them, and they all merge into one. Yeah. And then lift the helmet, and you've got the Halloween mask. But, you know, you have this whole fight. <laughs> but I like that it's creative. It's not Conan beating this thing just through, you know, might and just, like, hacking its head off. It's him having to problem solve and realize that this is magic he's dealing with and that you've got to crack the mirrors to hurt this thing. Like, it's simple, but it's also really cool. Yeah, totally. I, th I think it's an awesome scene. Because um, up to now, the, I mean, the movie, ha you haven't really had a good fight scene in this movie yet. I mean, you did have a little bit of Conan scuffling in the early sections. Yeah, where he's first captured by the Queen. Yeah. But this is the first time you get to see Conan up against, uh, you know, some kind of magical demonic force that, that Conan so often finds himself facing off against. Yeah, and I think that's what makes these movies so fun. Like... A lot of the stuff where he's battling, like, you know, dudes in, like, armor, I could take or leave it. If it's done, like, staged really well and there's some really cool gore, I'm totally down for it. But when it's kind of just, like, bumbling stuff, you know, like, him just kind of, you know, tossing them in the air, I'm like, eh, 
whatever. Like, give me the supernatural weird stuff that feels like it's very specific to the Conan universe. That's the stuff I enjoy. And this whole section in the Crystal Palace, I thought, was really filled with it. That's the stuff I really liked. Yeah, it did have one of my favorite fantasy movie tropes, which is um, there's an entrance to the castle that is somehow underwater. Sure. You, you always wonder, well, how does the how does the magician who lives there ever get in <laughs> does um, he though yeah does he ever leave well i think he turned himself into the cloud pterodactyl he does do the cloud pterodactyl thing but i mean i wonder if he's kind of like the knight in last crusade he just hangs out there protecting the crystal all the time maybe i don't know what he eats but maybe but, he doesn't have to eat but whatever the case you know that uh conan and his and his friends need to get in here through the uh, the underwater cavern or the through the underwater entrance and uh I'm just curious because they all say, okay, well, let's go. And then they swim in there wearing their armor, their, uh, carrying their weapons, having all their gear, their heavy fur cloaks. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm an okay swimmer. Right. I can't imagine trying to find the hidden entrance to a magical castle while, while carrying a spiked mace. Well, you're not Wilt Chamberlain. <laughs> no, I, I'm certainly not. My jump shot could use some work. Yeah. Now, this is kind of the whole section where a lot of the drama involving the princess comes into play, too, because the whole deal is that Wilt Chamberlain's going along to protect this girl's chastity and get her back to the queen, and the queen's going to sacrifice her. Which I'm just going to throw out there. Yeah, go for it. Uh, if I was going to hire someone to protect uh, a young princess's virginity, it would not be Wilt Chamberlain. <laughs> Who, I guess Gene Simmons was busy. Who has notoriously reported himself as you know having slept with over twenty thousand women in his Something life. Something like that. Yeah. yeah, that is. It's so weird. And I actually like you know it's the kind of stunt casting that's kind of so weird. It makes it interesting. But I actually think like Wilt Chamberlain's not that interesting in this role. And like the whole thing is his thing is he's going to kill Conan somewhere along the journey, and then get the princess back to the evil queen. And I'm like, you know, if you cast an actor in that role who maybe brings a little more menace or a little more ambiguity to the performance, I think it would be interesting. I actually think Wilt Chamberlain might be the uh, the uh, least valuable player in this in this team in terms of performance. Yeah, I think that he he brings a pretty good physical performance. I mean, he's yes. he's definitely. I mean, Schwarzenegger is not a small guy, yeah. right? Schwarzenegger is six two and uh, you know God knows how many pounds. Um, but you know, Wilt Chamberlain is seven one, sure, and it shows. When like they, yeah. and I think that Fleischer meant to do it where he's got these, uh, you know, these establishing shots with all of the members of the group, mm -hmm. and Wilt Chamberlain is just looming over everybody. But I mean, you've seen like over time of you know the history of film, like there are certain athletes who can act, who they can bring in and actually get a performance out of them. Shaq. Sure. Why? Well, you know, I think he's okay in blue chips. Maybe I don't know. I didn't. Maybe see not blue steel. Chips. Not definitely not steel. Shazam. And <laughs> not Dennis Rodman either. Although I do love <laughs> Double Team. But I mean, like I, I just don't feel like Wilt Chamberlain. They get a lot out of. He he just doesn't he doesn't emote anything. No. Uh, I mean, I don't have a problem with Wilt Chamberlain in this movie. He's just kind of a a, a cranky, surly one note guard. Yeah. And he, I think actually they use him just about right, which is... I think that's accurate, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he he doesn't have a ton to do. He just kind of waits for Princess Jenna to scream uh, or for Conan to get too close to her so he can 
sneer or or say something you know kind of mean-spirited or, or knock down a cave with a mace right um i just think though like you think of like arnold and all his charisma imagine if they put an actor with that charisma against him in this role yeah for sure for sure uh i mean i don't i don't have an issue with wilt chamberlain in this movie i don't i don't think you keep could... saying that are you concerned he's gonna show up at your door <laughs> i don't think he could get through my door <laughs> Uh, I mean, I think I, I, I mean, there's a reason why this is like the only movie he's ever done, though. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, I mean, at least I think there's a reason. Maybe he didn't like doing this movie. Uh, <laughs> What's not to like? Can you imagine this set? Arnold Schwarzenegger, Wilt Chamberlain, Grace Jones, like, and, and this must have been bananas. And a 14 year old Olivia Dabo. Yeah, wearing barely any clothing. What a what a weird casting choice. Yeah, this would not happen now. Olivia Dabo is this princess in this movie and you we all know her she you know growing up she was the sister on the wonder years and everyone knows olivia dabo she would show up in countless tv shows and movies over the years um but here she's you know the actress was 14 and they put her in very very revealing clothing and there are often shots where it's like boy they're really like focusing on her legs or something it's uncomfortable yeah especially i mean she's got kind of a pseudo an unrequited love interest in Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. Uh, at the time, Arnold Schwarzenegger was 37 and she was 14. There's no acknowledgement. He's never, like, treats her like she's a kid. Yeah, it, I think it's one of those weird things in, in Hollywood where normally they cast people who are a little older to play people who are younger. And in this case, they almost did the opposite. Like, they cast uh olivia dabo she wasn't great in this but she didn't do a horrible job no she's not like ernie reyes jr in red sonia no um so she, she's a little bit sitcom a little bit you know a little bit insufferable at times but I, th- I i i have to believe she's supposed to be playing someone a little bit older than 14 i think so right Hmm. i don't know like there's not a lot of discussion about this but at the same time like yeah when she came out wearing one of her like uniform or one of her outfits i turned to you and i'm like how old is she yeah whatever company is that has these uniforms i I don't think (laughs) i think they're gonna get a complaint at at some point um yeah anyway i mean there's all these characters i mean akiro the wizard's there malik's there and and the the crystal castle i guess we'll call it Mm -hmm. uh, tothamon's lair is really the the first part where we get to see these characters not only bond a little bit on the road, but also engage in a little bit of action and, and have their skills complement each other. Right, yeah, yeah. And I enjoyed that a lot. This, to me, was it the highlight for you as well, maybe, of the movie? I don't know if it was. It, it was uh, definitely a high point in the movie. I also really enjoyed a couple of the later action scenes against the uh, the, the Dagoth cultists. Okay, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And then the fight of... Uh, I, I really like the final battle as well of, um, you know, Conan uh, fighting the, the, the demigod Dagoth. Well, okay, so why don't we just jump to the next set piece? Because this movie really does... <laughs> it really consists of, like, a few set pieces and then just kind of some <laughs> traveling footage in between. <laughs> yeah. So let's move to the cultists of, uh, yeah, that temple where they have to get the horn. they got to trade the diamond for the horn. Yeah, you, you don't think... You, you don't consider the, the extended sexual education talk on the road to be a, a set piece? Yeah, like, watching Tracy Walter uh, give the sex ed course to Olivia Dabo was weird. <laughs> yeah, don't you know where flowers come from? And it's really weird, because, like, Tracy Walter, I don't 
think it's his natural voice, but it sounds like he's doing a Peter Lorre impression the whole time. Yeah, it is. It is a little bit interesting. I actually, um, I actually thought that, and it's not that no knock against Tracy Walter, who's um, a very, very, very well-known character actor. Oh yeah, big time. Like just, and something he's like he's kind of like a Robert Davy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because they're both beautiful. <laughs> Sometimes on this podcast, we you know we we talk about the character actors, and there's there's just people that just keep showing up and everything. And Tracy Walters, one of those guys, is just a yeah a real journeyman. What do you think of him as comic relief of this movie? Uh, I did. I I thought it was pretty poor. I don't think I laughed at a, at a single one of the jokes that he made. Um, it, it was yeah the the character of Malak I, or Malak was. I thought one of the weaker parts of this movie. I don't know what you thought. Yeah, I agree. Like, I thought it would be more fun to play him a little more competent because he's a thief. And I, whenever he had moments where he's like hurling daggers at people, he was really good at it. So I'm like, mm-hmm. man, make this character a little more cool. Like, yeah, you can still have him be the funny character, but don't make him like the guy who's always trying to run from everything and just like, I don't want to go, guys. And then it shows knights running out and he's like, oh, okay, I'm going to run with you guys now. You know, he's always like, <laughs> just like playing the coward card, which isn't that fun. He was kind of the Jar Jar Binks of Conan. He was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Mau Mau. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah, but I mean, but once we get through the, the Malik sex ed talk, a little bit of awkward fatherly advice there. Yeah. You know, we get to they they've now obtained the uh, the heart of what was it the heart the heart of Aramore the heart of Aramore and they're taking the heart of Aramore to uh, I think they call it a I think they're going to a crypt this time although I couldn't see anyone who was buried there there's no skeletons on the wall yeah um, but they're taking it to they're gonna somehow trade the heart of Aramore for the uh, horn of Dagoth. Right. And they get to this castle where the Horn of Dagoth lies. Um, there's a few collapsing gates that they need to lift in feats of strength. That is so goofy of watching Wilt Chamberlain and Arnold lift a gate. Like that, this like very like foam looking door. Oh, I thought it, I thought it was awesome. <laughs> that, and, and I'll throw that out there. Like this scene, the, the gate lifting scene, uh, and there was a bunch of these scenes in this movie. Fleischer took full advantage of of the physiques of the act- sure. actors that he was working with and there was just a lot of needless shots of i mean i'm no sword fighting expert but a lot of like needless shots of like holding a sword and flexing yeah lifting a gate and flexing oh there's a part where arnold does like a whole like sword display and it's just like <laughs> it is there entirely to show off his physique yeah and uh i i don't blame apparently fleischer that was um it was either fleischer or de Laurentiis. i can't i can't remember who thought that one of the biggest problems of Conan the Barbarian was that Arnold kept his clothes on too much. Really? And so in Conan the Destroyer, they made a point of having him undressed as much as possible. Oh, yeah. I was thinking that throughout the movie. I'm like, boy, did he wear this little in the first one? That's interesting to hear. No, he didn't. Apparently he also gained 10 pounds for this film. Okay, sure. Just to make him look a little bit more barbaric. Sure, I guess. <laughs> what do you think? But I, I, I do want to disagree with you on something, though, and that, you know, he really uh, used the physique of his cast. Like, I really felt that scene where they're lifting the door or the gate or whatever. You know, you've got Grace Jones right there. How fun is it if she comes in and she's also lifting? Because Grace Jones is known for kind of this, like, very, like, muscular woman. I thought it would have been fun to have her join in. Yeah, absolutely. Because Grace uh, Jones is bananas. Like, as an actor, she had, you know, this, she does this in 84. The next year, she does the Bond movie, A View to a Kill. Both of those performances are very strange. 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, we, we keep going towards the death cultists. Yeah, and then veering away. So I'll veer away once more. Uh, I thought um, of all of Conan's little gang. I thought, I thought Grace Jones as Zula was the best. I thought her, her performance was absolutely spectacular. I don't even know if it's a performance or if it's just Grace Jones. <laughs> I can't even tell. Yeah, I mean, it must have been interesting on set. I guess, um, you know, one of the things, and this is, uh, you know, I'll, I'll veer again here. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that we like to do on um, on Arnie Geddon is spot Sven. Right. Uh, uh, which is Sven Ole Thorsen, one of Schwarzenegger's longtime and frequent collaborators who's been in more Schwarzenegger movies than, than anyone except Schwarzenegger. Right. And incidentally was, or is, I, I think it's was. Yeah, it was. In a long-term relationship with uh, Grace Jones. Right, yeah. Um, he's in most Schwarzenegger movies, usually as a secondary character. Right. Um, did you spot him? Oh, yeah, he showed up as a warrior here and fought Arnold uh, for a fairly extended fight. Pretty good fight, yeah, actually. pretty good sword fight, and then got stabbed. Yeah, I actually thought that fight was better than the fight against Wilt Chamberlain at the end. I agree. And he was wearing like a thing hanging over his face because he'd been in the first one, so they wanted to disguise his identity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There you have it. But let's get to the cultists. So they open up. Are you you sure? I'm ready. I'm ready, Tony. You know, I've got it all out. So they finally lift that gate. They go in and get the horn. This was a moment that I thought kind of was a bit of a, a bit of a stumble in the sense of like, there's a visual like grandeur to that to that gem you know like the light hitting it and everything like that it looks really cool it mm-hmm. has that sort of raiders of the lost ark feel you know the golden idol and that where it just looks really cool and the horn did not but they're carrying this horn out as if it's like really majestic and characters are like practically bowing to this thing and i'm like you know it doesn't look as cool as the crystal yeah the crystal was definitely a cooler treasure yeah but um, again, probably going back to the same dungeon master sure. who came up with the name, the uh, Heart of Aramor. Uh, you know, he probably thought that the Horn of Dagoth would be an even cooler treasure. And you know, if it wasn't, so be it. The next campaign will be better. Yeah, you know, it's it's just another magical MacGuffin, anyways. Who who really cares? That's true. Yeah. So, uh, but they get the, they get the horn. Um, they think this crypt is abandoned, and then all of a sudden they're surrounded by these cultists who. Uh, you know, surprise them. People are worried. This is the Hyborian age. People get killed all the time. But thankfully, these cultists declare, we come in peace. And? And uh, they talk for about 20 seconds total before uh, Schwarzenegger, I think, throws a knife through one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and all of a sudden, there there is no peace. Well, it is revealed that you know, they, they aren't just coming in peace. They're going to resurrect this evil god, Dagoth. Yeah. And not just resurrect him. I don't know what it is about evil gods that require a virgin sacrifice. Yeah, I don't um, know. Like, you'd think, like, is there a way to resurrect this god um, without sacrificing something? you think the horn would be enough. One would think. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But, uh, anyways, it, it makes Conan angry. He kills one of them. And then um, you get another fairly gruesome fight and and what i thought was wilt chamberlain's best scene in the movie where he's just uh the the actual blows are off screen yeah but but where he is just pounding guys into the ground with his big spiked mace and you can see the horror on the faces of maybe the less physical characters malik and akiro and uh princess jenna yeah and 
I thought if if Wilt Chamberlain had more of this kind of stuff to do, yeah. I thought it, he would have had way more of a presence in the movie. There's a part where he kicks a guy in the head that oh, I was just yeah. like, oh my god. Yeah, you're like, that would hurt so I, I much. I think he actually did hit the stuntman. Like, it looked brutal. <laughs> and I know there's a, you know, there's an unwritten rule in Hollywood that uh, if a stuntman is, like, injured badly in a take, they'll use that take. And I know, like, Tom Cruise used the one where he, like, broke his leg in the new Mission Impossible movie, you know, the most recent one. And, uh, that you know, I think that maybe, I like to think that, you know, Will Chamberlain actually hit that guy, and that's the take <laughs> that wound up in the movie. Like, I would not want to get kicked in the face with a 1984 <laughs> no. Will Chamberlain. I, I, no. I think that would sting. I think you're leaving out the most, uh, perhaps, <laughs> epic fight in this whole scene, which is, as they're escaping, we get a wizard fight. <laughs> Well, I, I was going to get to that because we've seen the physical lifting of the gate. Yes. And now inside the gate room, there is yet another gate. Uh, only this one is shaped like a, a head of some kind. Or a mouth, yeah. And it is, uh, you know, powered by magic, I guess. And 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 why don't, you, why don't you take us through the wizard battle, Cam? It is ridiculous. So the head of the cultists... Is kind of just doing his own little like mmm and like causing the gate to open. So then Mako comes forward and is like, "Don't worry, I got this, guys." So he sits down and he does his own like mmm kind of back, and the gate starts closing again. He wins. I'm not exactly sure how. Somehow he's the better wizard. Again, wizard being powers are very tough to gauge. It's like when I see a Harry Potter movie, two characters hit each other with beams from a wand. It's like one dies. I'm like, I guess his wand was better. I don't know. <laughs> That's the way this kind of works. But uh, yeah, Akira the Wizard, like, he's a character who I, I just did not find interesting in this movie. Like, he, it's not even like uh, Mako's that bad, although it's like he's just got nothing to do and they sideline him most of the time. He's there to just, like, read out the occasional prophecy and then have this wizard fight. Uh, he found He found hidden doors. He just, anytime there was evil around, he could put his hands in a weird position and detect it. I feel like he was probably better in the first one. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'll agree with that. Okay, but no, this wizard battle is definitely a highlight in the movie because it's so goofy. But it's goofy in like the in the all the right ways where you're just like, this is absurd. And uh, I thought it was fun. Well, what I will say is, in that particular wizard battle, I think the right wizard won. I agree with you. Be because um, the other wizard, uh, who's played by Jeff Corey in the film, mm -hmm. he had on these really uh, annoying, I, I, I don't know what to call them, except like wizardly wrist bracers. Oh, like gauntlets? Where he was constantly slamming his wrists together. And oh, making that like bell sound? <laughs> ting, ting. It was not cool. No, it wasn't cool. You know, Especially, he'd already established that he could speak, so there was no real reason why he had to slam his wrists together twice and then point at guys he could just said you know hey you guys go over there <laughs> so at this point wilt chamberlain's character double crosses uh conan takes off with the princess to take her back to the evil queen schwarzenegger and crew you know despite being trapped in a caved in tunnel still find their way out and go off in pursuit to the queen's castle which is the final set piece of the movie to get out of that cave they have to crawl through some um uh very uh We'll call them low mass rocks. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Like a lot of the, a lot of foam, set foam rocks are being pushed around pretty easily in that scene. Yeah, they got them on discount from like the Star Trek original series garage sale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so they crawl out, go off to the to the castle, and yeah, you know, you got to have another castle infiltration scene in a Conan movie. And uh, as far as those sorts of things go, this one was pretty good. 
Not as good as the original Conan. Better than the one in uh, in Red Sonja. Yeah, I, I'd say so. The it, it had one of my favorite guard distraction scenes of all time. That was incredible. Why don't you just describe that? Uh, where you know they're they're infiltrating the castle um, through a, a baffling combination of loudly attacking people and stealthily sneaking around. Yeah. And in one of these scenes, uh, they there's two guards posted at the I guess the sacrifice room, and they uh, <laughs> they throw a rock and the guards spend uh you know a solid 10 seconds of screen time just looking puzzledly in every direction except the direction that the <laughs> the rocks that, came from yeah <laughs> um well uh zula and uh i think it was malik could have been akiro sure <laughs> sneak sneak in and uh and ultimately conan provides a further distraction and, and, the, <laughs> and the guards meet their demise so what did you think of this final confrontation where the evil queen unleashes the uh, the big monster um, Dagoth, and Dagoth, of course, as all monsters are, when awakened, when things haven't gone quite right because the princess has not been sacrificed, turns out to be a monster that kills the evil queen. So common. What did you think of this whole set piece involving Dagoth? I thought it was great, although it did highlight one of the things that I, I've read about this movie um, is that Queen Teramis allegedly had way more in, in a previous cut of this movie okay and sarah douglas has talked about it you can you can find some of her interviews online um she was supposedly had a lot more speaking scenes there was maybe a love scene with conan the barbarian oh really um yeah this movie is very sexless compared to the first one yeah. which is like full of these like weird like sex scenes and and with that context of of sarah douglas's comments and the the knowledge that's been chopped down from uh, an R rating to a PG rating after the fact that you can kind of see where maybe there was some more uh, story or or backstory mm -hmm. um, that that was in there. So that's the one thing I'll say then about this this fight with Dagoth and Queen Teramis being um, pretty unceremoniously killed as as the main villain in the movie. Yeah, she's gone in a heartbeat. Yeah. You, you, you figure, you know, it would, it would have been a little bit nice to know, you know, what Queen Teramis's, uh, you know, favorite um, food is or something like that. Or you know a little bit more about her before they just introduce her, uh, basically give her an expository piece, bring her back for 30 seconds and then kill her. She definitely doesn't have as much to do as Tulsa Doom. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, the final confrontation with her is pretty quick. It's kind of again going for that raiders of the lost ark thing where it's like awakening an ancient evil killed by it pretty quickly and that's the end of her yeah and and similarly likewise with with wilt chamberlain i already mentioned i thought that the fight with uh sven ole thorson's character was um uh, probably the best uh heavyweight fight in the film sure uh and it's not that wilt chamberlain and uh, arnold schwarzenegger didn't it's not like their fight was particularly bad it just didn't have the same impact it was a little bit more of a pg fight than a than an r fight it's a little clumsy and yeah. i just wonder how much of that is really like will chamberlain is not a trained stage fight guy you mm -hmm. know what i mean he's an athlete so like like i don't know how good he was at this stuff arnold's really good at it but i don't know that he was so i often wonder if they're kind of cutting around that because yeah. he definitely seems kind of lumbering yeah for sure and uh, uh so but ultimately we get to we get to the fight with dagoth um i i really like the monster Dagoth, um, and 
I think it's I think it's a really interesting design compared to what we maybe see in some other fantasy movies, where the monster is you know basically a an ogre that's a large human or a giant sure. giant scorpion or something. This is this is truly a monstrosity that controls lightning. So Dagoth was created by Carlo Rambaldi, who also designed E.T. and the head of the Xenomorph in the original Alien. Those are two of the most iconic creatures of all time. Dagoth is not. Dagoth is an interesting idea, but to me this looks like a big rubber suit. Like It's kind of fun looking, but it's very campy. Like This looks like a monster costume out of a 1950s like Sword and Sandals movie. I, I don't agree. I, Come I... on, this thing looks so corny. Like you can... <laughs> You can see the rubber no on it. No way, no <laughs> yes. way. I, I mean, you compare this to, say, the um, the mechanical dragon in Red Sonja. Which was awesome. Are you... I like the mechanical <laughs> monster. Yeah, that was cool. You like the mechanical dragon more than you like... You thought that the mechanical dragon was more realistic than uh, Dagoth, <laughs> the horned demigod. I... Yes. Oh, God. I don't know if we can continue with this podcast. <laughs> I mean, I remember when I saw this movie the first time around, I thought Dagoth looked ridiculous, and I still think he does. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they shoot him in broad daylight. <laughs> and I think they probably would have been better off to do it in, like, a darker setting. Well, the clouds roll in pretty fast. Not enough. They need more clouds. <laughs> 80% more clouds. Well, one thing I'll say, though, is this is this Conan the Destroyer. I mean, it's a movie we could... We've already dropped a bunch of trivia bombs here, and it's one where we could drop many more uh we won't but uh there is one that we we gotta say which is who's inside that suit cam that would be andre the giant i know it just so just knowing that andre the giant is in there yeah um whether it's a cheesy suit or an awesome suit (laughs) fighting conan the barbarian uh i mean that warms my heart i think for me maybe part of the problem with this creature is that when I look at, you know, Tulsa Doom with the snake face in the original, it looks incredible. Yeah. Like, so badass. And when I compare that to this, you're like, ha. Huh. <laughs> These two are not on the same level quality-wise. Yeah, no, they're not. But but it's fun, but it's goofy. Yeah, and I mean, it's not really a fair comparison. I think a fair comparison is the mechanical dragon from Red Sonja because... <laughs> Which is awesome. Because <laughs> <laughs> that Tulsa Doom snake is amazing. It is, it is. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of happily ever after. We get like a Star Wars awards ceremony well, well, at the end here. Well, hold on. Oh. Well, we have to admit, though, whether it looked cheesy or not, that scene where Conan jumps on the monster's back and... Oh, of course, and yeah. pulls that horn out of out of the monster's head. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that seems pretty awesome. That actually is pretty good. Um, I was actually kind of surprised to watch it. Conan didn't, you know, swipe his sword and take the horn off, as opposed to just like jumping on the thing's head and pulling it off. While all of his friends just stand back, <laughs> none of them are running in to help him. Although Malik does come in after the monster's dead and. Yeah, shiv it with his dagger. He also does have a cool moment though, where our, where uh, Conan's struggling with it, and he hurls a knife into its like mini mouth. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, that was. Uh, I mean, they all try and help. Uh, you know, Zula throws her spear at it, doesn't sure. do a lot of damage. Right. And I guess the nature of this monster is probably that the longer it's in existence, the more power it gains. I guess so. Something like that. The rules are not laid out at all. Yeah. you got to fill in your own gaps on but, that one. But that horn-pulling scene, it, re- it reminded me of uh, like scenes from mobster movies where they're pulling off people's 
toenails and stuff like that. It's, it, it's really gruesome, and you just think about, oh man, you think about what gets a PG rating these days, and I I can't even imagine something like that being in a this this is pushing R, let alone let alone PG. It is because you are not allowed to show blood even in in a PG thirteen nowadays, really. And, uh, you know, this had quite a bit of blood in it. And, like, yeah, that horn pulling off was pretty gruesome. Like, it was not, like, a quick pull-off kind of thing. It was... Uh, <laughs> the camera lingered on yeah, it. Yeah, it it's like, like like little tendons pulling, you know, back and forth and snapping. It's pretty gross. But, um, so, you know, ultimately, it's all kind of a happy ending. The evil god is slain. The evil queen is dead. Victory for all. The princess takes over the kingdom. And we get, like, a little Star Wars award ceremony. Yeah, it was right out of Star Wars, for it sure. It totally was, yeah. And so, you know, Zula becomes the, you know, one of the guards, or the head Ca- of the guards. The captain of the guards. Captain of the guards for the kingdom. Um, uh, the wizard becomes her wise man, I guess. Yeah, her advisor. Yeah, her advisor. And then Malak becomes the fool. Yeah, which seems like kind of a raw deal. Like, he, he was a little bit cowardly throughout the entire adventure but there is no reason to i don't feel like the fool is a position of honor <laughs> doesn't that mean just like he's gonna get like hit with tomatoes and things like that on the regular i think so i think the the role i mean again i don't know if a hyborian fool is the same as you know a game of thrones fool but sure i th- i think that um you know if i was attending an award ceremony as a hero expecting to get some honors and and the queen announced in front of the entire court that I was being awarded the position of fool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if I'd be really that okay with it. I'd be like, I went through a lot of hell for this. Yeah. And now I'm like a, like the idiot of the court? Yeah, I mean, she's the captain of the guards. Can't I be like the, the co-captain of the guards? Or like security, because you were a thief. Something like that. Or yeah, tre- like... Or treasurer. Sure, not treasurer. <laughs> but if anyone could, like, look out for, like, potential security breaches, I think a thief would be good at that. Yeah, anyways, Fool, fool he, he seems happy with it. I guess. Uh, Conan, uh, I like how each each one of these characters looks back at Conan, who who nods. Yeah, as if they need his approval to take these jobs. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and then Conan just, she, you know, the, the princess would like him to rule with her. And I'm like, this is uncomfortable. And then there's a kiss. Which is also uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, to be fair, it, it, you know, it was it was all her. Conan wasn't really kissing back. For sure. Um, Nonetheless uncomfortable. But then Conan decides that, you know, he wants uh, his own kingdom. And I guess not a child bride. Sure. And he strides out of the uh, court. And we cut to that iconic shot of Conan wearing a, uh, a crown on his troubled brow. And... Um, Mako giving the voiceover of, you know, all the adventures that Conan's gone through in order to win a crown. End with the wording on the screen, but that is a different story. And it's interesting because I'd always in my head thought of this movie as a box office bomb because I could never make sense as to why there was no third one. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that there actually was going to be a third one called uh, Conan the Conqueror. It was supposed to come out in 1987 and be directed by either Guy Hamilton, who did the movie Goldfinger... Uh, as well as the uh, couple of the other Bond movies, or potentially John Gillerman. And the deal was Arnold would be doing it. However, turned out he was busy. He was committed to Predator, and De Laurentiis didn't want to renegotiate his deal because Arnold's deal was going to run out in 87. And so they just let it go. And so we never got a third Conan movie. Unless, turn- unless you count Red Sonja. <laughs> well, yeah, Red Sonja came out the next in 85, yeah, but... 
So ultimately what happened is the script for Conan the Conqueror in 1987 became the script, you know, with some alterations, for Call the Conqueror in 1997 with Kevin Sorbo. And so we are going to be tackling Call the Conqueror down the road, but we're not going to be talking about it necessarily as a Kevin Sorbo vehicle, but I, th I think it'll be interesting to do a little bit of uh, cinematic archaeology and look at it as a potential Conan sequel. Yeah, I mean, we've done a whole episode fairly recently on Arnold's Lost Projects, and we didn't really talk about Call the Conqueror. I mean, we have talked about Call the Conqueror a little bit, hmm. um, but more, more as the punchline to a joke. Yeah. So uh, I think at some point it'll be interesting to go ahead and, and revisit it as a special episode, thinking about, well, th this is maybe the movie that that could have been made. There's still rumors that King Conan or um, you know Legend of Conan or something like that might get might get made at some point, but we'll see. I think you're the only one pushing those rumors now. <laughs> I think it's pretty much dead. It seems to be. I hope not. I I hope it gets made at some point. I've been I, I I've been waiting on it for a while. Yeah, I mean one one of the interesting things too, um, talking about the scripts of um, of Destroyer and the scripts of Conqueror is um, Conan the Destroyer. It was originally written by Roy Thomas, who's famous. I think he was the president of Marvel. Um, but he he's probably most famous for bringing Conan the Barbarian to Marvel Comics in the 1970s, right? And that, which ultimately became the Savage Sword of Conan. But him and another guy, uh, Jerry Conway, they did the story for uh, for Conan the Destroyer. Ultimately, um, it, it didn't work. It was rewritten and rewritten and rewritten uh into something that's totally different but there was a um a book that was released based on the original story where they the characters also have similar roles but they have different names i think it was also called conan the destroyer written by roy thomas no it's a graphic novel conan the barbarian the horn of azoth yeah sorry that's that's what i'm thinking of. yeah so you can track that down it's interesting actually one of the, the co-writer of that jerry conway um he's a guy who's done like tons of tv he also wrote for marvel for a while but he did it he wrote the script for a movie i was curious if you've seen because i've only heard a lot about it i've never seen it and that's 1983's fire and ice i was curious if you'd seen it. it's an animated sword and sorcery movie very like popular with sort of a cult audience i ha i have seen it okay. it's it's interesting it's uh I find a lot of the animation from the early 1980s, especially American animation, yeah. to be... Um, it's pretty cheap and kind of ugly. I don't know if I'd call it cheap. Like It's it's interesting. Like, right. Um, it's, it's certainly not always that pretty. Right. But um, it's interesting. It's not my favorite. Okay. that's. I was always curious about that movie because I've never really seen anything for it. I haven't even seen a copy. If I see a copy around, I'll watch it. But it's a movie that seems to have kind of vanished a little bit from... Uh, from visibility um but yeah like yeah those two write the screenplay and it's interesting just in the sense that like these are two guys who knew conan well they were comic book writers they have a real comprehension for like mythology i mean arguably roy thomas has had the largest lasting impact of how the public sees conan the barbarian yeah and he has a morbius movie coming out like that you know because he created the character of morbius and that movie's coming out next year with Jared Leto so like he's very prolific but um, I thought it was interesting because you got these two guys who are real comic book guys nowadays they would let those guys like write that script and run with it I think it's really interesting though they handed this one off to Stanley Mann who wrote movies like Firestarter uh, Damien the Omen 2 and like Meteor the uh, disaster movie and like 
again, you look at those credits, this guy was not cranking out gold. They were pretty middling <laughs> B-movies. And uh, you look at the two and you're like, I'll bet you, you know, that nowadays they would have run with the maybe the earlier script just because it probably was more interesting. Probably. I, I haven't I haven't picked up the Horn of Horn of off. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious to see how see what it is. I mean, um, I would like to read it just because I'd be very curious to know how uh, like how maybe denser it is with mythology and maybe an interesting way which audiences are more ready and willing to accept nowadays than they were in the 80s whereas like you look at this movie i mean anyone could understand this movie yeah i i mean whether it's the horn of azoth or otherwise uh i'd recommend to anyone who has even a passing interest in in comics to pick up some of the early roy thomas uh savage sort of conan comics that's it's in my opinion some of the best writing that's ever been done in comics for sure now this movie also won an award did you want to say what award it won well it was uh i i imagine you're not talking about the nomination that grace jones got for a saturn nope and she deserved that award for having tracy walter rub lotion on her thighs yeah that's she the, earned that award she, right there having to put up with that she got two saturns for that yeah no kidding um but no in 2012 this won the uh international F film music critics award the uh ifmca um well sorry it didn't win it was a nominee for best archival re-recording of an existing score wow so, and unfortunately <laughs> lost to the battle of naretva i obviously don't know how to pronounce that um, as well as the naked and the dead, at least according to my totally not fact-checked internet sources. <laughs> <laughs> and what a way to go out with that with uh, Conan the Destroyer. But let's just give our final thoughts, Tony. What are your final thoughts on Conan the Destroyer? You know, I'm so happy that we watched this movie for this the podcast. This this movie has always been a little bit of a shadow in the main Arnold Schwarzenegger filmography like it's not a big deal to me if you're a Schwarzenegger fan and you're not super into like Aftermath mm -hmm. or The Last Stand or something like that um, or the Jane Mansfield story but but Conan <laughs> the Destroyer it, you know it's it's prime Schwarzenegger movie time here right like this this is right right where the movies are being starting to be cranked out and the good ones are starting to be cranked out and there's always one I wanted to like and never really did. Uh, so it's nice coming back to it after a few years and watching it, maybe with a different lens on, and enjoying it a lot more. And I'm, I'm actually looking forward to maybe giving it a bit of a rest, but uh, this is one I, I'd come back to again for sure. What about you? Yeah, I kind of feel the same way as you. Like, I really enjoyed coming back to this movie, and while I've, you know, kind of ridiculed some of the stuff, like the really hokey monster designs or... A amazing monster design. Some of the performances in here, they kind of add to the whole spirit of the thing, which is this kind of goofball, endearing, you know, kind of silly adventure story. And... You know, if the original was trying to be like kind of an A-level movie, this is more of like a, you know, a throwback to some of those really like fun and silly like Saturday afternoon movies you'd see back in the day. The ones that, you know, were made in the 50s that were maybe a little campy or silly. Kind of like the lesser Jason and the Argonauts type movies. Right. You know what I mean? Like, And those movies are really fun to watch. I still watch those types of things. And Conan the Destroyer kind of falls into that. I could see how it disappoints fans who expect more... Just going off of what the first one delivered. Right. But this one works on that level, and I think it does it better 
than Red Sonja did, which I think Red Sonja is striving for that a little more, but not landing as well, anywhere near as well. This movie's fun. I, I enjoyed watching it. And I, I really didn't expect to when I sat down to sit yeah. through it. And, and I mean, as far as... Because what we've done recently is we all, we've also gone and we've looked at some of Schwarzenegger's very early work as well as some of his later work. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- what I found was really striking about this movie too is, um, you know, this is one of the first movies with Schwarzenegger where he's really finally developed um, a presence. Like he's... I think doing an excellent job as both a physical and an actual actor in, in this movie. Like he propels this movie forward more than anything else. Yeah, I know I agree with you because if you look at the first one, a lot of the heavy lifting is being put on Sandal Bergman, James Earl Jones, Mako. Like a lot of the supporting characters are the ones really carrying the movie and letting Schwarzenegger be more of this kind of mythic figure. Whereas in this one, you really do see that Schwarzenegger is now leading the show. He's very much a leading man. And uh, it's really interesting to see that evolution between just those two movies. Yeah, absolutely. And and also, just you think about even his... Um, I found his accent. Like, he's obviously been doing some voice work yeah. in, in the intervening years, too. Because his accent's much less pronounced than it was even in the first Conan movie a couple years earlier. For sure. Okay, so that brings us to the end of Conan the Destroyer. Tony... What are we doing next time? Well, we're fast forwarding in time and we're going to um, go meet up with, I think it's Gordy Brewster, if memory serves me right. In, Brewer. Yeah, sorry, Gordy Brewer uh, in uh, Collateral Damage, which uh, I'm looking forward to, to watching. It's a movie that I actually haven't seen since it came out in theaters. Same. Uh, it's not, um, I don't remember it very fondly, but, you know, as has been, I've been proven wrong here before. And uh, it's one I'm I'm looking at picking up. It's right at the tail end of maybe the middle period Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Um, the pre-politics Schwarzenegger. And uh, I'm looking forward to watching it and having a discussion about it here. For sure. Same here. Okay. You can, of course, contact us at ArnieGeddonPod on Twitter or at ArnieGeddonPod at gmail.com with the emails. I'm at Cam V is in Violent Beheadings Smith on Twitter. Tony, how do they get hold of you? Uh, you can find me, uh, Tony G, at ArnieGeddon.com. That's Tony, like the name, G, like the letter. You can also go right to our website if you like to del- download direct from the source. That's ArnieGeddon.com. And uh, shameless plug, wherever, wherever you happen to be downloading this from or streaming this from, uh, if you can, leave us a, a positive review of some kind. It It does help us getting our podcast out there and getting some more listeners, which is really what we want. For sure. Okay, so we'll be back with Collateral Damage.